is working our way very slowly through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And we're going to um, read again the opening uh, benediction or opening call to praise, uh, this blessing that Paul uh, penned at the beginning of this letter. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You follow along in your copy of the Bible as I read from uh, the New International Translation. Hear then what Holy Scripture says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. And you, you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Uh, A few months ago, I found in front of me on my desk a reference form that I had to fill out for my father. (laughs) Um, Usually, uh, members of families are not supposed to fill these forms out, but I had one in front of me. It was from Awana Clubs International, and they wanted me to recommend him for some ministry that he was going to be doing with them. (laughs) Uh, There were easy questions. How long have you known the applicant? (laughs) I got that one down. Uh, The form also asked me how many years of experience my father, my parents have in working with students. Uh, I think the best answer that I could put down was about 40 years. 40 years volunteering with junior and senior high students, mostly junior high students. Volunteering for 40 years to work with junior high students is grounds in 34 states for a mandatory mental evaluation. Uh, I was involved in many of those years of ministry, and I saw my dad do some, some crazy things. On two separate occasions, I think separated by about a decade, he motivated his students with pie. If they got a certain number of kids to attend certain events, they could throw pies at him. Once it was 40 students and 40 pies. Uh, my parents, uh, we used to take trips. Uh, we used to go places as, as the youth group. Uh, one of the most memorable events was a camping trip. My parents took 35 junior and senior high school students camping for the weekend. It poured and poured and poured. 
Uh, the, the weather was terrible. We actually, while we were camping, we had a tornado drill so that we would be prepared for what was going to happen if the tornado warnings came to fruition. Now, notice that the tornado warnings did not make us go home. They just made us practice in case they came. <laughs> we practiced, and, and the instructions from one a hyperactive uh, senior high student was uh, that uh, a tra- uh, tornado sounds just like a train. So if you hear a train, go to the designated area. We did not know that we were like five miles from a track, <laughs> which had unfortunate consequences. <laughs> Uh, the, the, it was, uh, uh, we ha- played mud football. We arranged our, our, our sleeping bags in the tents around the streams that were flowing through them. It was a great weekend. Uh, my parents had co-workers in our church named George and Marilyn Deaton. And the Deatons and my parents uh, noted about themselves, they considered themselves a good team because my dad would come up with the ideas and my mother and George and Marilyn would figure out how to make the plans work. Uh, my dad would say, let's take 40 people camping, and they would figure out how to beg, borrow, and steal tents, and, and keep food cold, and wash dishes, and, and uh, clean up, and take care of the needs of 40 people at a campground for three days. He had the ideas, and they made them work. Um, if you had to do it, you probably could categorize people, dividing them on, into groups based on whether or not they are planners or dreamers, uh, dreamers or, or planners, people who come up with ideas or people who make ideas work. Uh, rarely is anyone uh, completely in one category. Uh, my dad can make plans uh, too, uh, but I imagine that you could, without difficulty, identify people who lean towards one of these categories, dreamers or planners. You probably generally lean in one direction. Uh, maybe you're an idea person. You come up with ideas and all the time you are saying, let's, let's, let's. And, when, and if your spouse is not a dreamer but is a planner, when you say, let's, he or she on the inside goes, oh, no. Uh, maybe actually that's the way your family functions. One of you is the primary idea person. One of you is the primarily detail person. One of you works towards the ends. One of you works towards the means. I mentioned that to you this morning because we're considering uh, these days verses from Ephesians uh, and our focus for the last couple of weeks has been on the ends. Uh, that is the plans of God for our destiny. He is the one who has drawn out the horizon. He is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And this is a difficult passage of scripture in that regard, isn't it? Uh, let me draw your attention to a couple of those difficult passages. Um, look at verse 4 again. It says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. The ends continue in verse 5. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 11 continues that language. In Him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Paul here is speaking about God's sovereign choice to save His people, uh, which makes us think a lot about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom. 
Are Christians fatalists? Does it mean, if we agree with election and predestination in the Bible, does that make us fatalists that, that we're all, we have no real sense of freedom and that God steamrolls people into doing what He has decided beforehand? That, that, uh, uh, uh the text, that, that we're just robots here and we do what God says without any sort of freedom at all? The text doesn't say anything about it, but what about people who aren't elect or aren't predestined? Has God steamrolled? Is He shoveling them into hell because that was His decision uh, regardless of what they want? There's just some really serious questions that come up from this text. Uh, we affirm election and predestination because this is what the Bible says. And we submit to the authority of the Bible despite our questions. But Paul wants you to read these verses and do more than just accept it, just to resign yourself to it. All right, I guess if that's what the Bible says, I'll believe it. And I'll think about it once a year when we have to from the Bible. But Paul wants you to do more than that. He wants you not just to accept this. He wants you to rejoice in it. He wants you, when you read in the Bible, he chose us. Paul wants you to say, yes, he did. It's great. Uh, you can see this. That Paul wants you to delight in this because he says that, that God's sovereignty is a consequence of His grace. It's a product of His loving kindness. You can see that again all the way through the text. Verse 3, he's talking about spiritual blessings. Verse 5, uh, his predestination is an act of God's love. It's supposed to, verse 6, redound to the glory of His grace. He has given us rich grace. He has lavished His kindness upon us. Um, If it were not for electing grace, if it were not for loving predestination, no one would of themselves choose Christ. Without predestination, without election, following Jesus Christ is about as attractive to most people as a glass of vinegar sprinkled with arsenic. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, we learn about how God's sovereign grace is one of the reasons that we remain faithful telling other people about Jesus Christ. In Acts 18, the Apostle Paul was in Corinth and he was really having a difficult time. He was preaching the gospel, but he was, he was suffering for it. And God appeared to him in a vision and said to him, Paul, stay here. I, I'm with you, he says in Acts 18.10, and I have many people in this city. Stay here and keep preaching the gospel, Paul, because there's Corinthians that are mine, they just don't know it yet, and you're going to go tell them that they're mine. That's why uh, uh, we don't quit teaching Sunday school or uh, quit leading in Awana. Or, that's why you don't quit speaking to your neighbors, because God has people in Manor Township and in Lancaster City and in Hemfield and in Conestoga and Willow Street uh, that are His. They just don't know it yet. You're going to go and, and tell them. If there is no one else here within uh, reaches of our church that, that cannot be effectively called by God, then, then there's no point in us being here. We have to pick up shop and go somewhere else. An election guarantees that. It's, it's God's predestination moves us forward. What I want to do this morning for our special consideration is look at verses 13 and 14. And I want you to see from verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 that God's plans include not just the ends, but also the means. 
He has not only laid out the horizon, but he has established everything in between as well. Um, In fact, we're going to turn our attention this morning from verses 13 and 14 to the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, I I mentioned this, verses 3 through 6, focus our attention on the work of God the Father in in laying out the ends. Verses 7 through 12 talk to us about the work of of Jesus Christ, who is our uh, Savior, who put God's plans into action. And verses 13 and 14 tell us how the Holy Spirit applies God's plans to our lives. Or you could say this another way. Verses 3 through 6 are about the what. What has God planned? Verses 7 through 12 about the who. Who is going to work it out? And verses 13 and 14 are about the how. How does God apply what He has done to us? And that's what I want to show you from the text this morning. That's what I want to uh, direct your attention to. How is it that God works out His plans to bless us in our lives? How does He apply His good plans to us? Uh, We look at this again, and a central reason that we're doing this is, in keeping with Paul's letters, this is supposed to uh, give us another reason to praise God. Because of God's work in our lives, we rejoice in Him. Now, what is that work? Three things I want you to see from Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. How does God apply His blessings to us? Number one, He sends the Gospel. He sends the gospel. If you want a place to write some of this down, I think there's a green sheet in your bulletin. If you're interested, you can follow along there. He sends the gospel. Verse 13, uh, the apostle turns his attention to the Ephesians' encounter with God, and he writes this. He says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is about their encounter with God in which the Apostle Paul himself plays a role. And you, if you're reading this faithfully, should think about your role in this. You should think about your own life when you heard the Gospel. See, God's method for lavishing grace upon people, God's method for adopting people as sons, uh, God's method for forgiving sins is to send men and women to deliver a message. This is how Paul primarily thought of himself. He says I'm, in verse 1, I am an apostle, I am a sent one from God. And look with me over at chapter 3, verse 7, Paul's understanding of himself. Look what he says. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, I am one of these messengers that has come to you to tell you the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is a central part, actually, of Christianity. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ now shares in this task of sending the gospel, spreading the gospel to others. Uh, You and I, if you're a follower of Christ, you have been deputized in this work. God sends the gospel, and He sends it through people who are followers of Christ. There should be some evidence in your life from this week that, that you're involved in this task, that you're engaged in this process. Uh, maybe, maybe it was a conversation that you had with your neighbor. Uh, maybe it was uh, writing a check and sending it to, to a missionary, uh, supporting them financially. 
Maybe it was praying for the salvation of your family members. There's, there should be some way in which you, if you're a faithful follower of Christ, are involved in this process of sending the message, of delivering the message. Verse 13 tells us how we go here. Look at verse 13. It says, we have the word of truth to go with and we have, also it's described this way, the gospel of your salvation. Those two, two phrases Paul uses to describe the message. It's the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. And both of those things are somewhat countercultural, aren't they? Um, it, it's a message that says to human beings that you need to be delivered. That is, you need to be saved. You need to be salvified. <laughs> and that there's only one way to be delivered. It's the true way. That's a countercultural message. Because people don't really like to hear that there's something wrong with them, and they certainly don't like to hear that there's only one way to fix it. But if you take the Bible on its own terms, it comes with a confession that there is brokenness in the human condition. But you know that, don't you? Don't you know that from your own experience? Even though it's somewhat offensive, you just know it. Uh, I subscribe to periodic postings from the Atlantic uh, magazine. They have a website. And, and right now, uh, for this year and probably the next couple they are in the process of posting series of photographs from World War II. It's a 45-issue series. Uh, once a week, uh, these pictures end up on my computer from World War II. And this week, the theme was the war in the Pacific. So I looked at all these pictures from the war in the Pacific, 35 pictures. They were fascinating. It's a fascinating series of photographs. One of the things that I saw in this, this range of pictures was uh, an image of Japanese soldiers that were half buried in sand that had been killed by a mortar shell that fell on them. Uh, the American soldiers dropped it on these Japanese soldiers. And looking at that picture was a, a bit of a jolting experience. For my entire lifetime, no American has ever tried to kill a Japanese person. Uh, uh, the Japanese are our allies. We, we trade with them. We cooperate with them to, to bring about stability in the Pacific. When the North Koreans go crazy regularly, we talk to the Japanese to try to bring about stability. Um, uh, we send them relief when a tsunami destroys their homes. You know, but, but it was not that long ago, in the lifetime of many of you here, that you remember that we were trying to kill their soldiers with everything that we had. Those old pictures are a jolting reminder that, that the world is, is broken. And sometimes that brokenness flashes out in bombs and ships and guns. And sometimes it bursts out in boastful words to your classmates. Or a slam of your fist in frustration. Or an arrogant thought when you see somebody that you think is less intelligent than you doing something stupid. This brokenness just flashes out. It, it comes out as an expression of our inward alienation from the Creator. God is good and everything He has made is good. And He does gracious and loving things. And He filled this world with good things. And I fill this world with ungrace, ungood things. 
Um, this rebellion against God, this self-centeredness, my living in the little world that where I am king, it just oozes out this, this stench of unwelcomeness into the good world that God made. Uh, life is, is hard, and it's hard because of this uh, stench of rebellion of ours against the Creator, the, the God who made us. Life is hard because we've made it hard and it merits God's ferocious wrath. And the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation is the good news, the good news that there is a way out. There's a way out of the brokenness. There's a way out from under the sentence of eternal death. We're going to celebrate that a little bit later today when we partake of these elements, these, these symbols that remind us of what Christ done, has done for us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He offered Himself on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. This is the message that God sends. This is God's kindness to send this message to us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God sent it to you. Think about it. Do you remember how God sent you this message? What, what God did? For many of you here, probably it was your parents. Your parents sat down with you the Bible and, and told you about Christ. Maybe it was a, a, a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe you heard something on the radio. I have an idea for you. Why don't you ask somebody today, before you leave, why don't you ask somebody in our church, just as a way to encourage them and find out about them, why don't you ask somebody how they first heard about Christ. Maybe you should talk about it over lunch today. Sit down at the table and, and talk over lunch about how you first heard of the good news of Jesus Christ. Your kids need to hear that from you. It would be good for you to rehearse that with them. Uh, once you do, when, when you talk about it, you should then rejoice in God's kindness because God sends the gospel. Second, though, there's something else here that God does besides send the gospel. God supplies faith. He supplies faith. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Then it says, having believed. Now, actually, having believed and having heard are parallel in this, in this uh, passage. So, having heard and having believed, you were therefore sealed. You were marked in Him with a seal. What followed the sending of the message in the Ephesians' lives when Paul preached the gospel, they believed it. They believed what he told them about Christ. And this answers for us a very important question, maybe a question you've been asking. This passage is strongly rooted in election and predestination, and the question becomes, how do you know if someone is elect? How do you know if someone is predestined? The answer that this passage gives us is that they believe. If someone believes, they are elect. Faith is the sign of election. I do not know uh, uh, whether or not someone who is not believing is elect. You only know when someone believes. So we proclaim the gospel, as Paul told us, and those who respond in faith are the elect. This is the response that God demands from all people, from the good news of all people to the good news of deliverance through Jesus Christ. 
turn to him from whatever else you're trusting in for your happiness, your satisfaction, your uh, sustenance in life, and you, you turn to what Christ has done on the cross and depend on him. Is it hard or is it easy to believe? Hmm. Is faith easy or is faith difficult? On the one hand, um, it, it's easy, isn't it? Uh, my kids are, uh, well, in, in the Bible, children, children can do it. Uh, children are uh, the Oscar-winning performers when it comes to faith, to, to belief. It's easy, I suppose, except for the fact that it's offensive, too. It, see, it demands this posture of dependence before God. And that's somewhat offensive. My children have no problem admitting their dependence upon me. They do it all day long. Daddy, can you get me? Daddy, can you? Daddy, help me do this. Mommy, will you? Mommy, will you do this? Children are nothing but large sucking holes of dependence. The, the sucking holes of faith here. But if you're an adult, shouldn't you be able to do it yourself? I am tying no one's shoes in this room. Because you're an adult, you could do it yourself. Well, if you ask nice, I might do it. But you can do it. You don't need me to get you a napkin. You don't need me to pour you milk. You don't need me to help you pick out clothes because you can do it. You don't want my advice there. Anyway, but you, uh, 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 and, and if you have a problem before God, shouldn't you be able to fix it yourself? I mean, if, 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 I haven't, if God is wrathful for me, toward me, can I just fix the problem? I created the problem. I should be able to fix the problem. But according to the Bible, you can't fix the problem yourself. Let me uh, read to you from an article by Dave Dorr. It's a few paragraphs long, but listen to it. I think you'll appreciate it. He says this, Recently, a firefighter in our church was told by one of his colleagues that belief in Jesus was for weak people. I find that ironic coming from a firefighter. I have a fire hydrant in the yard that runs along the side of my house, and I have never looked at the fire hydrant and felt any shame. I drive by a firehouse every day, and I never think to myself, if this community didn't have weak people, we would never need firehouses. And when I pay my property taxes every month, taxes that help finance fire departments, I never get angry at myself thinking, if I could just handle fires on my own, I wouldn't have to write this check. Imagine a person whose house is on fire. The fire is raging out of control, and soon a fire truck pulls up sirens blaring. The person runs out of their house in a rage and says, how dare you come to my house and think that I can't handle this fire myself? Firefighters are for weak people, not for me. What would you think of someone like that? You would think they were insane. We know that fire departments are for weak people because of power exists that we simply can't deal with on our own. Fire. Actually, we admire firefighters because they are people who have committed themselves to take on the power of fire at personal expense. Christians are weak in the same sense that a community is weak for having fire departments. They are people who acknowledge that a power exists that they can't confront and live, namely the holiness of God. This, however, is not cause for shame because there was a man, Jesus, who dealt with that power at his own personal expense on a cross. 
When someone is rescued from the flames, they're not thinking about their weakness. They're overjoyed that someone would risk it all to save them. It's hard to let go of this notion that I can fix it myself. But without letting go of it, you have no hope. Notice here this morning that I said that God supplies faith. I use that term intentionally because Ephesians tells us that faith is a gift from God. Look at Ephesians 2.8. You probably all know this verse. For it is by grace you have been saved, or many of you know it, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Another passage from Paul makes this even clearer, I think. Uh, Keep your finger in Ephesians and turn with me to the left a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. I, I think I've showed this to you before. It's a marvelous passage in Paul, one worth thinking about. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Look what Paul writes. He says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made this light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Your natural condition is blindness. the, The text says, the God of this age, our enemy and God, Satan, has blinded us naturally so that we cannot see the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ. But just like he spoke those words in Genesis 1 where he said, let there be light, God speaks into your life and and the blindness is removed and you see the glory and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ and seeing Him calls forth faith in your life. Just like when you see something amazing, you go to the circus and you see amazing acrobats or somebody shows you a a video online and they do something stunning, uh, you gasp, involuntarily <gasps> seeing the glory of Jesus Christ is, is the heart uh, the, the heart responds with faith to this yes I will believe in this one who is so beautiful and so glorious and so wonderful and God does that he removes those scales so that we can see Jesus and seeing him changes us That's why we as a church, we're committed to speaking about the wonder and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ because seeing Him calls forth faith in us. It it changes us. That's why we read and we sing and we pray and we talk about Him. And that happened to you the day that you trusted in Him. You, You saw His wonder and glory and, and faith came. You probably weren't thinking, it, thinking about it in those terms. <laughs> you, you, you probably weren't, weren't processing it in your mind the same way that 2 Corinthians 4 does. But this is what God was doing in your life. God sends the gospel. God supplies faith. And third here, notice the text, God says He seals us with the Holy Spirit. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. In the middle of verse 13 it says, Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. 
who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Um, Paul uses here two images to describe the Holy Spirit. One, he says he's a seal. Secondly, he says he's the, whole, the Holy Spirit is a down payment or a deposit. Uh, seal here, Paul is referring to that, that liquid wax that you would put on a letter or on a scroll. You'd put the liquid wax on, uh, maybe you'd brush it on or drip it on from a candle. And then you'd take your signet ring, your seal ring, and you'd stamp it in the wax. And by doing that, you would be identifying this letter. Uh, it would maybe be a mark of ownership. You would be saying, this letter is from me. I authorize its contents it is uh, mine, I own it. You are sealed. Um, actually, other things than just letters were sealed. Uh, animals were sealed. Uh, possessions were sealed. Slaves were, were sealed. They were sealed with the mark of ownership. What I find astonishing here in this text is that the seal is personal. The seal is the Holy Spirit Himself. It blows all of my categories of what a seal is. Um, I'm looking forward. We're going to read the rest of the book of Ephesians and study it more carefully. The Holy Spirit plays a prominent role in the book of Ephesians. It's good for us. We who are non-charismatics, we don't talk very well about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things. So we're going to unpack that as we go through. Here the emphasis is on the, the fact that the Holy Spirit seals. Again, it's strange. It's strange that a person would be the seal. Oh, think about this with me. Imagine if you decided because your car is getting a little old that it's time for you to join AAA. So you uh, call up or you go online and you join AAA, the uh, Automobile Association of America. And a few days later, uh, your house and your doorbell rings and you open it and there's a lady standing there and she says to you, Hi, I'm Janice. I'm from AAA. Uh, you just joined and I'm here to uh, signify that you are a member of AAA. Say, Okay, Janice, uh, thanks for stopping by. She says, no, you don't understand. See, uh, I'm going to move in and I'm going to be with you so that you don't forget I am here as a personal reminder 24 hours a day that you and AAA go together. And whenever you need any help from AAA, I will be here because I am here to signify your membership in AAA. Now, how would you respond to this? You say to Janice... Um, don't you have like a card, maybe? I mean, didn't they used to give away cards? AAA is all of a sudden sending people. I, I don't think my dues are going to pay for you, Janice. Uh, God has sealed those who are his own with himself. It's astounding. Uh, think about the implications of this. If you are a follower of Christ, you did not come to church alone today. Uh, you're not going to go home alone today. You have in your heart the personal mark of God, which is God Himself. That's astounding. Paul also uses the imagery of, of deposit or down payment. Uh, you're, you're familiar with this concept. A deposit is, is when you put down a small amount of money as a promise that you're going to come back and pay the full amount for whatever it is that you want to buy. And the Holy Spirit Himself is the promise of God that He is going to come and claim us as His own. Paul uses here redemption as a, as a future thing. Last week we talked about redemption being a past thing. Christ has redeemed us. Now the, uh, God is, is going to come in the future and redeem us. Well, how does that work? Well, Christ has redeemed us in the past, 
But we do not yet now experience all of the benefits of redemption. And someday God is going to come and we're going to come into our inheritance. And we will experience all of the benefits of what Christ did on the cross when He died for us. Think about this. This is an astounding promise. All these spiritual blessings coming to ours in fruition, in, in, in fullness. There are around the room, there are people who have a greater appreciation and greater knowledge of God than others. Uh, Kathy's youth pastor um, used to say, not because God is playing favorites, but her youth pastor used to tell the youth group years ago, God has no favorites, just intimates. And there are people around who, who, who know God better than you do. There are people who know God better than I do. When I, I read uh, some books, in particular one of my favorite authors, Thomas Watson, when I read Thomas Watson, I say, oh, God, I wish I knew you like Thomas Watson knows you, knew you. But, but the differences between you and you or you and somebody else are minuscule in comparison to what we will receive in that day when God comes to claim us as His own. Uh, the, the image, the, the, the vision that we have of Jesus Christ now, maybe it is enough to move you a little bit on Sundays when you come. Maybe if Sunday is particularly good, it, it's enough to control your ba- behavior all the way to Wednesday. Maybe it's enough to change you and consider changing uh, uh, some patterns, habits. Some, for some of you in particular, the vision that you have of Jesus Christ will be totally transformative in your life. Still minuscule in comparison to what we will see and experience and know when God comes to claim us as His own. Everything that you enjoy about God, everything you think positively about Jesus is just a small foretaste of that which is to come. Now, now we're finishing this passage of Ephesians, this prayer, this call to worship, and you're supposed to read it and marvel at what God has done. I cannot believe how fantastic this work of God is. That's your response. And, And what's astounding is that it includes you. It includes me. This grand plan of God. It started before the foundation of the world that was worked out 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ that is applied to individual lives by the Holy Spirit. This huge plan and you're in it. Don't make a mistake. You're not at the center of it. God's at the center of it. But you're still in that plan. And if you understand that, if you really grasp that, your response to this will be, give me more. I want more. If this is God's grand plan and I'm in it, I want more of it. I want more of God's work in my life. And the rest of the book of Ephesians is dedicated to telling us how that works out. It will help us focus on this God that Paul begins describing. This God who is so worthy of our worship. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do come before you this morning and we do ask that you would give us more. In fact, next week, uh, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at where Paul prays for more for the Ephesians and we come and we pray for more today. That you would grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know you more fully. 
Father, continue to stun us with the grandeur and the wonder of your plans and then move us forward in faith so that our heart's cry as a congregation is for more, more of the riches of your grace, more of your lavished wisdom and understanding, uh, more of your glory so that we might respond with more of our praise. You work in stunning, surprising, humbling, uh, uh, striking, soul-thrilling ways. Make us people who are thrilled that way. Do that according to your kindness. Again, we're asking for bread. You will not give us stones. You will not give us snakes. You're a good father. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise him, we say together in Jesus' name. Amen.